As uh, I begin this evening, I want to first appreciate all of you and uh, congratulate you for making it through the first day. It's, uh, it may sound uh, slightly humorous, but it really is a courageous thing to stop and keep quiet and to look within. Very rare in this world, and uh, it really does take a lot of courage because it requires that we face uh, we face our the legacy or the residue of how we have lived our lives, mostly innocently, uh, how much of the time we have spent uh, living as one character and Mr. Duffy, who was said to how we, he had lived a few feet from his body. And many of us have spent a long time uh, a few feet from our body, living mostly in what we could call virtual reality and the imagined versions of ourselves that play in our minds and often missing the underlying world of our moods, our emotions, the life, the vivid life of the present moment. And when we stop and feel it, it sometimes is quite scary and it's a, a life unlived. And yet uh, it, is the, it is maybe unique to human, uh, the human experience that the very things that are difficult to be with when we actually face them become the as uh, one teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, called the manure of Bodhi. They become the, the manure of our awakening and actually become the cause of our healing and our tenderness and our love to stop. So it is courageous. It is why I think the Buddha called this path swimming against the stream. Does it make a little more sense after a day of practice? It's, it's not for the faint of heart. So I really appreciate uh, all of you doing it. And every message that we have gotten from, really from the moment we were born, was the way f to find relief is to go out of yourself in search, not to go in. But Rumi reminds us that the cure for pain is in the pain. Um, and that's, but it's rare to actually take that medicine. So speaking about the pain and the challenges of settling in on a retreat period, uh, you may be surprised to know that I would like to speak tonight about happiness. <laughs> After all, the Buddha was called Sukhiya, or the happy one. He was not called the great sufferer. Even though there is a, the teaching of the, the, um, the invitation to face suffering and that if we face the difficulties of our life, they do become the cause of our freedom. Uh, nevertheless, it's easily uh, interpreted as the teachings are all about suffering. But they really are about happiness and as that universal desire in all of us to be happy and to be free of suffering. And the Buddha was just like us, and he's devoted his life and his practice to finding out about happiness, what it means to be happy. And really, practice is a kind of inquiry into this question, because it's clearly not the happiness that we ordinarily associate with happiness, the happiness of a Buddha. It's not simply about being in a good mood. I'll guarantee you that in those 45 years after the Buddha's awakening, he was not in a good mood every day. So his freedom or his happiness 
had to be about something else, something perhaps more reliable than a mood, more reliable than any kind of state that is uh, subject to change and decay. When I was thinking about doing this discourse tonight, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of just uh, riffing a little bit is because I, I really didn't remember until last night when Leela reminded me that that was the theme of this retreat. And so I didn't really spend a lot of time <laughs> contemplating a talk on happiness. But when I was pondering it this afternoon, I remembered something that really got me interested in the, this subject of happiness. I had the good fortune of being the attendant to a, a wonderful Indian teacher named Anagarika Munindra, who is Joseph Goldstein's teacher. He's one of the founding teachers of IMS, for those of you who don't know, a really preeminent uh, Western Dharma teacher, my root insight meditation teacher, one who really ignited the flame of Dharma in my heart. Uh, he sat with Anagarika Munindra for about six years intensively in India, and I had the good fortune of being his attendant when he came to teach uh, in the U.S., and I was simultaneously managing a, a retreat. So I took him around and showed him the sights and sounds of the Southern California desert where we were holding the retreat. And we got along famously. And he saw that I was fairly good-natured and uh, generally a, a happy person. Uh, and I watched the way he conducted his life. And he's, he liked to shop a lot, interestingly enough. He loved to go in shops and look at things. and. He spent a long time thinking about this little boom box that he was going to get. And you, you wouldn't think that that would be the, uh, the expression of awakening. <laughs> but nevertheless, he did it in such a, such a um, delightful way. Though. He had a wonderful spark about him. And you could ask him anything, anything about the teachings, and he would immediately launch into this exquisite um, dissertation on uh, any aspect of the Dharma. So finally, at the end of my time with him, and I had a lovely time, and he, I asked him just to, any input that he had for me uh, as he was parting. And he looked at me really carefully, and he said, may you truly be happy. <laughs> and I'm saying, I'm saying it for effect right now, because it, However he said it, it reminded me that maybe I wasn't truly happy. Maybe I was, had some limited or partial understanding that it didn't have much to do with a happy disposition or, or able, the ability to laugh. All those, those things are fine expressions. But it was about something else. And so it started the wheels turning. And of course, I came across this teaching that the Buddha was called the happy one. And I had never really associated the teachings with, with happiness. I had associated with them the cessation of suffering, coming to terms with your condition. I never really got uh, that idea of happiness. So I started to study it, and it turned out, as I looked at it, as I looked at the Buddha's life, his life reflected the evolution of his understanding of happiness. And it might be, in, in talking a little bit about his life, it might be reflective of your own life and your own understanding of happiness and, and our, your own confusion about it. 
before I launch into that, I'll just say that the Buddha talked about, in general, and you can kind of use this as a framework to think about happiness tonight. He talked about it, there being basically two kinds of happiness. One kind of happiness he called Lokiya Sukha. Lokiya is worldly happiness. Lokiya Sukha is, Sukha means happiness, comfort. And Lokiya Sukha, worldly happiness, means the happiness or pleasure or comfort that comes when you've satisfied some kind of hunger. In other words, the kind of happiness that depends on conditions being the way that you want them. When they're just right, you feel great. This evening, I had a magnificent moment of Lokiya Sukha looking at the sunset, and I imagine many of you did as well. It's a beautiful thing. We, it warms our hearts. We get this, I, I, I felt this kind of rapture fill my heart, a kind of absence of any kind of discursive thinking for that moment, even forgot that I was giving the talk for a moment, looking at the sunset. This is tremendously pleasurable. But this kind of pleasure depends on those conditions being the way that they were. So you can think about the kinds of pleasures that you have in your life, and we have lots of them, and they're, they're wonderful, this lokiya sukha. A little subplot, though, is the Buddha also called this kind of happiness, another translation for lokiya sukha, is it's called the happiness of bondage, or the happiness of slavery. <laughs> That is if, and I'll just qualify that, that is if you don't really understand what its nature is, that kind of happiness. Once you understand its nature, it's, it is the happiness of freedom. So there's this lokiya sukha on one side, and on the other side, what, I'm, what I just intimated, is this happiness of freedom called lokutra sukha. Lokutra means unstuck from the world beyond the power and influence of the world, the happiness, un, the unconditioned, a happiness that doesn't depend on what's going on, a well-being that is uh, independent of circumstances, otherwise known as the happiness of freedom. So you can see which one sounds like it's more reliable. <laughs> which one sounds like the one you would like to aim for? A one that depends on, on situations being just the way you want them to, that the meditation turning out just the way you'd like it to, fulfilling all of your hopes and expectations, or a meditation, a sense of well-being that doesn't depend on how your meditation goes from one sitting to the next, from one day to the next. Not that you don't care how it goes, but that you can find a place of composure right in the middle of it, a place of ease and balance, even when it's not going so well. So getting back to the, to the Buddha's life, he started, as all of us did, I think I even mentioned this last night, relatively speaking, and I consider us, relatively speaking, very privileged, having lived a, a the kind of privileged existence that allows us to meet in this way, to have the resources, the time, the uh, intelligence, the, the health, to be able to, uh, to 
sustain this kind of practice, to be able to have the, um, the yearning and then give, a, give action to that thought, that intention, and to show up here on a retreat. It's a reflection of a kind of privilege and um, that's actually not so common in this world. But he was, his privilege was exceeded anyone's uh, relative to his time. He could have, because he was a prince, he could have all kinds of uh, pleasures of the senses. He could have sunsets, uh, sunset-like experiences uh, to, his heart's con- to his heart's desire as many times as he wanted. <coughs> Sensuality, music, whatever it was, he could, ex- he could literally exhaust uh, those kinds of experiences and did. But he saw one day, progressively, that it wasn't really uh, giving him a sense of, of relief because there was a defect in the so-called, lo- the so-called worldly pleasures that he was enjoying. The defect was that they passed away, that they were unreliable. And they left in their wake a sense of dissatisfaction and a desire for more. Have you ever experienced that? And so someone who could experience that degree of pleasure could still not say, I'm happy. This has made me happy. And I think we share that predicament. Relative to the rest of the world, we have had in fact, I, I think I brought along a passage from, this goes back from the, to the 19th century, from Alexis de Tocqueville, maybe even the 18th century. Do you know? It says, in America, I've seen the freest and best educated men and women in the circumstances the happiest to be found in the world Yet it seemed to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure, because they never stopped thinking of the good things they have not yet got. So he found the same predicament and started to feel, as many of us do, a kind of restlessness and agitation. Because not only does the the mind that seeks sense the pleasures of the senses as our source of happiness. Uh, I forgot what I was just saying. Not only, not only, what did I just say? (laughs) This is what happens. Anyone who inclines one's mind toward this kind of happiness as their devotion and applies what the Buddha called a a kind of misplaced faith in these kinds of pleasures, spends a lot of time in a a kind of trance-like hope and wait and expectation, a, a dream in a sense of a future that never arrives. Because the happiness is always connected to this next best experience, that place, that time when I get what I want. And we enter, literally enter into a kind of trance of time. And that 
trance of time, that trance of expectations, of hope, of waiting, it keeps us in a state of, rather than happiness, it keeps us in a state of suspended happiness. And the present moment, as Eckhart Tolle puts it, the present moment turns into a place that we're simply passing through on our way to somewhere else, rather than the only reality, which it is. It turns into a means to an end. It either, uh, then it turns into an obstacle if we don't get what we want. And ultimately, if we get very frustrated in our desire, it turns into the enemy, the present moment. The only moment becomes colored. And all of this is mind-made because of the confusion about where happiness is to be found. This is the defect of devoting ourselves to this level of pleasure. So understanding this doesn't mean you have to abandon this kind of pleasure. The Buddha continued to enjoy the, the pleasures of the senses, but he understood their, their defects, their dangers, their limitations, but he also understood their pleasure. He's, he actually suggested in his teachings, we no, need to know three things. We need to know their pleasure, we need to know their, their defects, we also need to know what it means to be free of them or with them. So how did he come to, to realize this? He began to feel a kind of restlessness, could not be satisfied with all the sense pleasures that could be had in his day. So he started wandering around his, his, uh, his dad's lands, uh, the kingdom, I guess. I guess his dad was a, the big king. And he started wandering around, and like the rest of us, what often will shake us out of our, our stupor, what begins to illuminate some of the limitations of where, where we tend to focus our attention, is he saw somebody who was very ill. He saw the so-called heavenly messengers. He saw somebody who was extremely sick, who was similar in age to him. And at that time, he was 29 years old. And this really struck him. He had somehow, in all of his pursuit of sense pleasures, hadn't quite noticed that human beings get sick. And someone so close in age, and he realized at that time, I could, there's all kinds of renditions of the story, but he realized this could happen to him. It's likely to happen to him. Then he saw an extremely old person, and he realized that beings grow old. And then he saw a corpse, a dead person. And this kind of shook him up. He saw that his own mind and body were subject to, to uh, changing conditions, to aging. He began to really contemplate the limitations of his own body that he so depended on. It's another source of great dependence on, on his body and great sense of identification. And it really shook him up, and he had this kind of um, shock and dismay at the futility of trying to find relief in his body, trying to find relief in pleasures, and he started to think, what? there's something wrong with this picture. If I am subject to these changing conditions, to if the definition of, my, of the birth of my life is the, the leading cause of my death, that's a takeoff on a, on a, um, a dictionary definition of 
of birth and the or death or birth, the, the leading cause of death. I think it's the Wiley's dictionary. But if I'm subject to this birth, sickness, old age, and death, why should I seek that which is also subject to sickness, old age, and death? There was just something wasn't right about it. And it kind of shook him out of his his endless search for, for pleasurable experience. And fortunately, he saw a fourth heavenly messenger. He saw sickness, old age, death. He saw the heavenly messenger of a, of a renunciate, somebody who personified or expressed a, a simplicity of life, a, a swimming against a stream. And often when people hear this notion of a, of a renunciate or a mendicant, they automatically think, I have to throw away my whole life and give everything up. But it's, it's much more subtle than that. It's really, it's a shift in understanding. It's a shift in aim. Uh, it's a shift in where we uh, take refuge, getting back to last night's refuge in, uh, within rather than this constant going out of ourselves in search. So upon seeing the renunciate, his... Um, he started to feel that sense that perhaps there were beings who could point him to a more reliable refuge in this world of sense pleasures. And he had heard of some teachers that were famous in, the, in his day, and he immediately said, I, I can't do this prince thing anymore. As I used to talk about it. I, I, I can't go into the family business. In fact, he went and told his dad that if I, if I have to be a sovereign, it will be like, like someone sitting on a, a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart. So he begged his father to let him take off and really follow this great longing that he had, this great desire for something, the only desire that no other desire could fulfill, going against that conventional stream. And you may not know it, but you've, you've already turned your attention toward that stream, even if you're hearing all day long the pull of that uh, craving for comfort and the, con and the enormous conditioning that's built up to avert anything uncomfortable. Still, the fact that you're here, the fact that you made it through a day means that, you're, that you have somehow listened to that inner call that uh, that begin that call within us that begins to call us rather than out calls us back into ourselves that reminds us that we are one way of saying it that we are what we're looking for and our whole practice is to begin to actualize that and realize it in each moment not even tomorrow just even right now So in the case of the Buddha, just getting back to the story, he saw the beauty and wonder of the world of senses, the world of sense pleasures. Said they, in fact, he, later in his teachings, he talked about how the sense pleasures, it's not an accident that we can enjoy them. Just a little, a little backstory or a little aside, that the fact that we can even enjoy these pleasures is a reflection of a certain kind of purity of, um, of action, that we've acted in a way that is at least um, moderately non-harming enough that our minds are not constantly reverberating with the effects of, our, of lying, cheating, stealing, breaking those precepts that, uh, that Leela shared last night. 
that the effect of a certain kind of purity, of a, a, a non-harming life, uh, is the capacity to have the senses open and free to enjoy this world. The joy of solitude, the joy of company, the joy of that sunset, all of those things, a wonderful fruit of purity of action. But ultimately, that kind of, of pleasure, though, is, uh, is subsumed under the umbrella of what the Buddha called dukkha, or otherwise known as unreliable, in, in that translation of unreliable, unsatisfactory. So he relinquished his devotion to ordinary sense pleasures and went to find a teacher that could point him in a, um, in a direction that perhaps was more uh, reliable. And he started to do very much the same thing that, that we're doing. He was taught practices of bringing the mind and body together using the practice of, uh, of mindfulness of breathing called Anapanasati. And very quickly, because his, his intention was so one-pointed, he really didn't want anything else at this point. In that process, he experienced a great um, sense of tranquility and calm and brightness and all of those effects in the brain that Leela spoke about. This great uh, happiness came over him. And because of the power of his concentration, that happiness could be sustained for long periods of time, not as fleeting as the ordinary sense pleasures. And he saw that it, this was a, this kind of happiness that came when the mind and body are in harmony. He called it an unmixed happiness because it's not mixed up at all with any desire for anything to be different. Did you have a few moments like that today when you didn't want anything to be different? It's a strange question, isn't it? I guess the question would be, did you have any moments when you wanted things to be different? It's much of the time, isn't it? It's quite remarkable. We can be in the most amazing conditions, and our mind, by habit, it's very innocent, but constantly wanting things to be different. But this kind of unmixed happiness, no shadow of any hindrances of restlessness or agitation or doubt, a great sense of confidence. And the, the, and the effect of this is to not want anything to muck that up, not want to get caught up in anything that would disturb that kind of calm and peace. He said, this, is, this kind of happiness is really delicious. This is what he called purity of mind. And this is, uh, there's a whole portion of the Eightfold Path, the, teach, the path of awakening, that's devoted to training our capacity to have this kind of tranquility and calm and strength of heart and mind, to just be right here with this kind of unmixed happiness. You're planting those seeds every time with this simple, you could call it the simple muscle that we have within our mind to connect with this, the actuality, the life of the present moment, and then to sustain that. It's, I often call this the the love muscle, because it's the, same, it's the same movement of mind, this gathering of our mind and sustained attention that we bring to another person to create a sense of intimacy, that we bring to an activity 
that gives us that sense that we're really into it. It's this quality of mind that we, we can do over and over again that actually brings a kind of gladness to our hearts. So this kind of purity of mind, this called the, uh, the happiness of, of concentration, another way that it's been described, a beautiful thing. But there was a point, though, that the Buddha saw that this is quite fantastic, and it seems so useful, so healing to the body, so, so um, wonderful to have this inspiration to not fall into the traps of, of the fleeting, ordinary sense pleasures and get caught to spend my whole life waiting for the next experience, planning my vacation, my weekend, my whatever it is that we all do. What a great thing. But then he started to see something that's maybe quite obvious to you as you hear about this, is he saw that that kind of experience was also subject to change. That kind of purity of mind. It depended on conditions being a certain way. When the conditions were right, mind and body in harmony, everything quiet, no hindrances, beautiful. But he saw that those conditions would eventually fade away. And so that that experience, as delicious as it was, was, could not be said to be a reliable refuge, could not give true happiness. So I'm wondering how many of you today, this is, because it's so human, I think it probably includes all of us, how many of you were looking for that really delicious experience when everything would stop? And then how many of you had that experience? I bet many of you did. <coughs> and how long did it last? <laughs> the proverbial question. <laughs> how long did it last? Because even with, even with spirituals, these, what, what he called a super mundane, beyond the mundane kinds of pleasures, even they eventually pass. And we can end up, even with those kinds of experiences, caught in that endless web of, of searching. The, in leading retreats over the last 25 years, especially for people who come back to retreats, who've been on retreats before, there is a lot of, a lot of activity in the mind that is spent trying to replicate experiences from previous retreats. We often have a joke, we call it uh, carrying the corpses of previous retreats with it. And they, it ends up becoming quite a burden uh, to carry those old experiences and then try to replicate them. So this is what happens and we tend to, we tend to uh, get caught up in this. But I just want to back up a little bit. This is not just the tendency toward meditators. This is our life pattern. This is what we're taught from the day we are born. It may even be the way that our our, um, our brain functions. I haven't read so much about this particular activity. I know that we are mostly inclined to be in a state of wanting, just in terms of our evolution. But culturally, you can hear the flavor of this in the teachings of Sogyal Rinpoche, where he says, sometimes I think 
that the great, and you hear how it's reflected in our culture. Sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. As an 18th century Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness, but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. How do you feel when you hear that? <laughs> what was that? Dehydrated. Dehydrated. <laughs> Beautiful. So we come to this tendency to continue to seek experiences. We come to it very honestly. But even those rarefied experiences, that ones where we think we've really come home, they are a reflection of some very deep and profound home that is already here. But as an experience, uh, they eventually pass away. So just one little more punctuation on this, this tendency toward uh, wanting experiences to make us happy from the teacher uh, Sri Nisargadatta. As long as we believe we need things, experiences to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence, we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy when in reality, it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point when, where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual ever-present experience. Which experience? the experience of being empty, open. And that's, to me, this is, this is the same as mindful. The experience of being empty, open, mindful, uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy
for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in openness. In the emptiness of all content, true happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. Lokutra sukha, a sense of well-being that does not have a cause, does not depend on circumstances. So how did the Buddha come to that understanding? It wasn't enough just to abandon the happiness and pleasure of those sublime meditative experiences. But he first had to try to um, try the practice of trying to avoid them, which is what we tend to do tend to make ourselves miserable trying not to want those experiences and then get all bound up. But in a more literal way, he tried ascetic practices, starving himself, denying himself pleasure to the point where he was, uh, he was so uh, weak and tired and uh, thin that it's said that if you could touch, he could feel his spine by touching his his stomach, he was so thin. And he wasn't even able to practice at this point. He wasn't able to, didn't have enough energy or clarity to see anything. So he saw at this time that to go to the extremes of sense pleasure was not so useful and helpful, or going to the extreme of self-mortification or denial or rigidity uh, was not in any way. And this is the point where he began to discover the middle way. And he remembered a time when he was comfortable, young, well-fed. So in having somehow the pleasures of the senses, the comfort that comes with being well-fed and comfortable, having these experiences, but not necessarily being overtaken by them, not being driven by them, but using that comfort, using that sense of well-being uh, to, um, to connect with reality. So he took some food, he left his ascetic friends, and he, it's at this point where he did, there, were, there was no one around to teach him anymore what, the, what an ultimate or more reliable kind of happiness would be. So he set out on his own, and it's, as the story goes, he sat under the Bodhi tree in, uh, near Bodhgaya in India and began to, uh, to practice again on his own. And he did very much what we're doing here. He aroused his mindfulness. He even experienced, went back into some of those states of, of concentration, experiencing their pleasure. But it's said in the teachings that he didn't let that kind of pleasure overtake him. He didn't let it turn into uh, a kind of um, seeking of more. He let the, the strength of, of mind from that, those experiences, instead he, he didn't let the, the joy overtake him. Instead, he just used that power of mind to pay attention. This is essentially the, what we're doing by developing this sense of focus, this sense of tranquility, is we're creating the conditions for you to see for yourself what's really going on and what's true. And see what makes you tick, what makes, what makes you, rather than 
something that you can read in a book. What is it within your own stream of consciousness that gets you hooked? What is it that sets you free? What, is it, what, it, what are your own top tunes and top patterns that play out that, that have, have a, a beneficial impact on your life? Which things don't work so well? So in his case, he sat down, aroused this kind of mindfulness and concentration, and made the determination not to get up until he uh, found what he was looking for, willing to literally um, die on the cushion. It's kind of commitment. And he started to pay attention to the flow of experience. And an interesting thing happened as he paid attention to the flow of experience. The more he paid attention to whatever came into his mind, I hope you find this slightly interesting. I always found this useful to think about anyway. The more he paid attention, no matter what he paid attention to, it was as though it was like rubbing uh, two sticks together or rubbing flint. The, the more he paid attention, the brighter his attention became. And the more continuous his attention was, the brighter yet, until he began to recognize that his mind was literally shining in its clarity, shining brightly. But something even more important than the mind that was the luminosity of his mind that began to, refl to reflect everything so clearly, it reminds us that we, there, it's not to make clarity a, a, um, a goal necessarily, but it is a natural result of being more present, of seeing things um, without the bias of memory and hope, is everything begins to be brighter. Be brighter. Someone today said that in the, I forgot, in one of the groups where they said they, they stop or something and then they take in the view. And I know from my own experience that if you really devote yourself to those moments of mindfulness, walking, sitting, and you make them really continuous, it may seem as though you're really confining your awareness into a kind of narrow field. But when you do stop and you open your senses, you'll find that your, the sounds are much more bright, sights much more vivid, smells, taste. Did you notice you tasted food, especially for people, tasted food like you've never tasted it before? This is not an accident. This is the result of this, uh, as Nisargadatta put it, brushing the dust of memory so that the clear mirror of your mind is laid bare. So the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind got. But he, just, he didn't just notice the brightness. He noticed in, in that everything was reflected more clearly, he saw that everything that arose in his mind arose and it gently arose, and it, then it passed away. He saw the changing nature of things. He saw that whatever arose and passed away in his mind, no matter what he thought about, no matter wh who, what kind of story his mind told, whatever feeling it was, whatever sensation, all coming and going. And he saw that there was a kind of... Um, 
he, he saw with a certain, what he called um, purity of view. So we've had purity of action that leads to kind of pleasure of, of the, the capacity to experience sense pleasures, purity of mind, that mind that's unmoving, that leads to that great joy of concentration. At this point, he had what he called purity of view, where he could see these the, the common laws that were operating with everything. He saw everything coming, going, everything, nothing could be hold, held on to. And he saw that it was all arising and passing of itself according to conditions. He saw that everything was conditional. That this thought would lead to this, this, this. When this came, this came. When he had a, a, a pleasurable smell, he could see the mind would fill with desire. And he could see that desire that would, would lead to a chain of more associations and more thoughts and more becoming. And then he saw that the whole of his mind was this kind of empty flow of experience happening all by itself. And even more importantly, as he paid attention to the flow of experience, he noticed that this mind that was mindful was no longer pushing things away, was no longer grasping. It was no longer saying, this is me, this is mine, no longer getting caught up in the whole misidentification with it and building a monument to what was going on. He saw that in the, what was seen, there's just what was seen. And in the heard, there was just what was heard, and the smelled what was taste, smelled, tasted, tasted, felt, felt, and that's all there was. Coming, going, sick, those six basic experiences we talked about this morning. And as his mind stopped that grabbing, that pushing away and getting so bound up in his identity around what was happening, what it meant about him, his mind relaxed. And he fell into this, the joy that comes with purity of view, the joy of equanimity, joy of this unshakable sense of balance. And he realized in that moment that sense of balance that comes in any moment of mindfulness, you could say. Because a moment of mindfulness is not compatible with a moment of pushing away or grasping or getting caught in a story about something. It's just right there. He saw that this, um, that this moment was a, a, a glimpse, a taste of that other kind of happiness, that lokutra sukha, a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was happening in his mind or body. So at any point during the day today, if you were just able to be with an experience without pushing it away, without grasping, without building any story about it, without identification, just that. You may not have appreciated it at the time, but literally giving yourself a, a slight drop in the, in the bucket, a taste of this sense of, uh, a glimpse of the sense of well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances. And maybe I even shouldn't use the word well-being because when the Buddha talked about happiness, he talked, said that the highest happiness is peace. So we tend to associate it with that good mood.
So as he sat, just to continue the story, as he sat in this great uh, joy and peace of equanimity, this taste of a well-being that didn't depend on what was going on in his mind and body, he saw that the, this, um, that none of this that he was experiencing he could take ownership of. And as his mind withdrew its, its grasping, its, its engagement with everything, so, so caught up in reactivity and just experienced the full juice of life, the whole creative expression of life. In a flash of insight, his mind relaxed and, and in a flash of insight, he opened, his mind opened. And he realized, whoa, I have been looking for this sense of this reliable refuge for all this time. I've been looking through this experience, that experience, this teacher, that teacher. And in a flash, he realized that the very unshakable refuge that he had been searching for was none other than his, the nature of his own mind. Just one way of talking about it. He realized the, the, um, the deathless, the unconditioned. He said something to the effect, I don't have the quote with me, but he said, there is a field of experience beyond this tire, entire field of, of mind that is neither this world nor another world nor both, neither moon nor sun, neither arising nor passing away nor rebirth is beyond something or other. Uh, this is the end of suffering. But how far did he have to travel to find that? How far do any of us have to travel? This realization is really fulfilled and expressed in each moment, this possibility. He felt this, at first he didn't, uh, he, he was so struck by, the, by the, um, the freedom dawning in his consciousness, the sense that the search w had ended, was over, and he hadn't really gone anywhere, and he, all he'd done is found himself, you could say. Uh, he, didn't th he thought it was so subtle, he thought it, because it's so close. And in fact, the Tibetans have this wonderful teaching that uh, they call the four faults, where they say that, that, um, it's, that this freedom or this nature of mind is too close, it's too vast, it's too wondrous, and it's too easy. We can't believe that freedom is the state of nature of our own mind. And so we wander a, a long time confused. So he didn't think anybody could get it. It's like trying to see your own face. And he, um, but then he saw that there were those, and I include all of us here, uh, those with just a little dust on their eyes. And those if pointed rather than out, right back to the, the very nature of our um, consciousness that we too could realize that lokutra sukha, that well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances.
And so he began his teaching. And it's very, I find it very interesting what he started with. He started with the teaching called the, I'll just do the 10 second version of it, but the teaching called, a sutra called the Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And in that uh, setting the wheel of the teaching in motion, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, he said there's lots of stress in being born. Being, more, being born in a physical form, being born into those imaginary versions of ourselves. There's stress in that. There's stress in, in uh, being sick. There's stress in getting old. There's stress in dying. There's stress in not getting what you want. There's stress in not wanting what you get. Any of you know about that? And this stress must be welcomed or, or recognized, seen for what it is, so that our life doesn't become an endless running from this. As Rumi put it, an endless running from silence. We need to welcome this. That's the prescription. He said the cause of this is our endless tendency, this deeply conditioned tendency, to want things to be different than the way they are get caught up in our expectations, our hopes, our dreams. That's a state of wanting the next pleasure, a state of wanting to become someone or something, a state of wanting something to stop, the non-becoming. And this state of craving, as it's often called, tanha, keeps us in a state of perpetual suspended well-being. And it's not so much what it is that we are waiting for or wanting. It's this very state itself. It's like when you're waiting for the bell to ring. Any of you notice that today? We tend to be fixated on the bell as, this, as if it's the cause, will be the cause of happiness. But what's actually keeping us bound at that moment, besides the, some degree of discomfort, is that state of waiting for it. So we invite you, as you go along here, when you want the bell to ring, notice that sense of wanting that sense of waiting. It's very interesting. And sometimes when that is mixed with your attention, you'll see that it comes and it goes, that sense of waiting. The bell hasn't even rung yet, and you feel OK. So we tend to be caught in that state of wanting. So the, the, the Buddha's prescription for this was to begin to, to let go in whatever way you can learn to let go, to abandon this, uh, this uh, pattern of continually wanting things to be different. How do we do that? We do that with, uh, with mindful attention, using that very state of craving as our practice of letting go. Ah, this is craving. We take an interest in even that. And he said in, in this first teaching, there is an end to this craving. There's an end to that, that constant toppling forward into the next moment. This must be the prescription. This must be realized. We can all know this in real time, what happens when we allow things to come and go without that kind of grasping, without that, that uh, demand that things be different than the way they are. We can all experience that. Next time that you feel that desire for the bell, desire for the meal, desire for your body to feel better, see what happens if you not only notice the discomfort, but notice the state of mind and the attitude of mind that's meeting it. And then finally, he said, there's a path. And uh, a path is the so-called noble eightfold path. 
path of purity of action, of harmonizing our actions, purity of mind, all reflective of the Buddha's life, purity of mind, and ultimately purity of view, wise understanding, right mindfulness and concentration, right action, all of it, uh, bringing mindful attention to all these domains of our lives and mindfulness being the, the navigator. And through this uh, careful attention, continual opening to this unfolding existence, uh, we can remember or realize the same freedom as, as the Buddha. So I'll just end with my favorite passage about happiness and the happiness of a Buddha from the, a Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche. It's called, entitled uh, Free and Easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply allow the entire game to happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing and manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good or bad experiences. They are, to, they are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emma Ho, marvelous. Everything happens, unfolds by itself. So let's just sit for a moment. No need to change posture if you unless you want to. <laughs> 